we had Passover last night, and of course it's unusual to have a Friday night Passover. I was talking with Mr. Franks yesterday. I was wondering how frequently this has happened. And he commented as we were chatting in his office that it has occurred twice in the last 14 years. So this year, I believe I've got the numbers correct, this is the third time in 15 years that we've had a Nisan 14th uh, Sabbath, which of course gives us a double Sabbath. Today's Passover day and the weekly Sabbath, and tomorrow is the first day of unleavened bread. So we have a double church weekend. But um, of course, this uh, Passover day and some events associated with it, with it raise an interesting question. What happens in a year like this one when the Passover is on Nisan 14th and then what happens to the wave sheaf? I'd like before getting into the body of the sermon briefly to discuss the wave sheaf because of course the wave sheaf, the beginning of the agricultural cycle in ancient Israel initiated some very important events. We have Passover, we have the Days of Unleavened Bread, and we count 50 days, beginning with this rather remarkable ceremony. Let's take a quick look at Leviticus 23. <clears throat> we should mention here that the wave sheaf offering is not a holy day, but nevertheless it is a rather important event because the wave sheaf offering uh, determines when we keep the Feast of Pentecost. Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 11. Leviticus 23 verse 11. This is the high priest who takes this sheaf of barley. Barley was the early crop in the spring, referred to as a poor man's wheat. Barley was the early crop. He shall wave the wave sheaf. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord. This is the high priest to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. So it is offered on a Sunday. I'm saying that in quotes, okay? Of course, the days were counted a little bit differently. Uh, we're talking about uh, sunset to sunset, but it was offered on a Sunday, apparently, on early on a Sunday morning. But the qu question arises in a year like this when Nisan 14th is a weekly Sabbath and Nisan 21st, the last day of unleavened bread, is also a weekly Sabbath, when was the wave sheaf offered? Would the wave sheaf have been offered in a year like this, in effect tomorrow morning, or would it have been offered one week later, next Sunday, April 4th? Like I said, this has come up every now and then in the church, and I think it's the kind of thing that's good for us to review and just explain. There was a controversy in uh, first century Judaism about the offering of the wave sheaf. The Pharisees had a very different teaching, but I learned recently that even among the Sadducees, there was a little bit of division about what would happen with the wave sheaf in a year such as this one. Some advocated that it was actually outside of the Days of Unleavened Bread, in a year like this one, some advocated that it would have been on the first holy day. I did a little bit of reading, and uh, some of the information about the Sadducees is a little bit murky, but nevertheless. Um, but what's the correct answer? Actually, the scriptures give us an answer. Let's stay in Leviticus chapter 23, and we have read uh, verse 11 about offering the sheaf. What happened, of course, is that the high priest on the Sunday morning takes this measure of barley, and he waves it up into the air. Okay, now we've got an advantage. You've got your New Testament, you've read the New Testament, and you say, oh, of course, I know what that means. I know what that symbolizes for New Testament Christians. I doubt what the, they did back then. You would have had to have been pretty perceptive to have it figured out. But let's keep reading Leviticus 23 and verse 14. You shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you brought an offering to your God. That's the wave sheaf. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. Keep in mind here, no touching the new harvest of the land. The barley was the early harvest, the grain. You're not allowed to touch it, according to God's law, until the wave sheaf has been offered. And then, dropping down a little bit, verse 15, count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. And of course, you come out on a Sunday, in quotes, okay? 
Verse 16, count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, then you offer a new grain offering to the Lord, and we've got these two loaves that are brought out, and it then begins to discuss the festival of Pentecost, which is unusual because the festival of Pentecost is the only one of God's holy days that doesn't have a specific date attached to it. So remember now, there's no harvesting until the wave sheaf has been offered. You can't touch the produce of the land until the wave sheaf has been offered. And in actual fact, the Bible gives us the answer to that. When would the wave sheaf have been offered in a year such as this? Tomorrow morning or one week later? Turn with me, if you would, to Joshua chapter 5. Some are familiar with this, but perhaps it's good to go back over it once in a while. We've understood this for quite a while, but and it's in the literature as well, by the way. Joshua chapter 5. This is uh, the children of Israel on the plains of Gilgal, keeping the Passover as they get ready to invade the land. It was a time of rededication. Joshua 5 and verses 10 and 11. Joshua 5 verses 10 and 11. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal. They kept the Passover on the 14th day of of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho, as is required, of course. And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover. Look at that very closely. They ate the produce of the land the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. What did we read back in Leviticus 23? You're not allowed to eat anything from the land. No parched grain, nothing, until the wave sheaf has been offered. So obviously, this is a time of renewal. This is a time when they're rededicating to God's law and they ate of the new produce. By the way, the old King James Version has a translation error there in Joshua chapter 5. It was the new produce of the land. So the only possibility here is that between Passover and that following day, they've offered the wave sheaf. By inference, we understand it. Think about last year. Last year, I was at home for Passover. I think we had Passover on a Tuesday night. So Tuesday night into Wednesday was Nisan 14th. And then, of course, till you get to the next Sunday, you've got, what, four days, a four-day gap. Okay, it's only in an unusual year such as this where you can have Passover and wave sheaf and holy day back to back. So Joshua chapter 5 shows clearly that the beginning of the count for Pentecost The wave sheaf in a year such as this begins tomorrow morning. And this is something that we've understood in the church for uh, since the 1970s, actually. But I think it's good to have a little bit of a refresher such as that. Anyway, so what we've got here, we've got the high priest and he takes this measure of barley and he waves it. He waves it up in the air. Some see it as a a sheaf, a measure, a, a a shape rather. Others say it's a certain measure of grain. Whatever the case, he takes this quantity of grain and he waves it up in the air. Um, And it's, of course, deeply symbolic, as so many things in the Levitical system were. And you and I read that, and I guess it's fairly easy, because we have the advantage of having the New Testament. They didn't bag them. John chapter 20, Jesus Christ fulfilled the wave sheaf. John 20, verses 15 through 17 John 20, 15 through 17. John chapter 20 and verse 15. They're all taken by surprise. Interesting, isn't it, in John's gospel, how much surprise there is registered there. There's so many things that they didn't fully understand that you and I have the privilege of understanding. John 20, verse 15, Jesus said to her, woman, whom are you, who, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She thought he was the gardener. And she said to him, sir, if you carried away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, he heard, she heard his, heard his voice and then realized who he was. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. Jesus said to her, don't cling to me. I think she wanted to give him a hug. Don't cling to me. I've not yet ascended to my father, but I go to my brethren. So the point, I don't, haven't yet ascended to my father. The wave sheaf had not yet been, symbolically, the wave sheaf had not yet been offered. And Jesus Christ, of course, fulfills the wave sheaf. Now let's turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28 and verse... 
9, Matthew 28 and verse 9. As they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice. So they came, and they held him by the feet and worshipped him. Notice there, he allowed them to touch him. They held him by the feet, recognizing that he was their Lord. So at that point, we infer that he had ascended and been accepted by the Father, fulfilling the wave sheaf. Matthew 28, still verses 5 through 7. The angel answered and said to these women, don't be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen. As he said, come and see the place where the Lord lay. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And indeed, he's going before you into Galilee. He's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I've told you. Jesus goes before you. Fundamental to the new faith of the New Testament church was the fact that Jesus Christ was not dead, that he'd been brought back from the dead, that he goes before his disciples, that he's the head of the church, that he leads the church. He goes before you. For the sake of time, we won't, won't turn to Acts chapter 1, where it talks about 40 days where he was with the disciples, but we know he made it very clear to them that he would be in heaven at the right hand of the Father. This is basic to our faith. You know, sometimes I, I, I think that perhaps because, you know, this is 20, 21st century, we're in the south of the United States, we're surrounded by churches, and it's not news to Baptists or Methodists or whoever that Jesus Christ came back to life. That's part of their belief as well. It's not news for us either in one sense, but do we overlook it? Do we really appreciate what that means? God the Father brought Jesus Christ back to life and constituted him as the head of the church, and then you've got roughly a 2,000-year gap at the end of which he comes back to earth. Christ is the head of the church. Christ is our Savior. Jesus Christ is alive. Let's never brush past the, the importance of those statements. We came to the Passover last night, and uh, I must say it was wonderful to be back together with everybody last year, sitting at home, watching the video. Nothing against Mr. watching Mr. Burnett on the video, but, uh, you know, uh, no feet to wash. Uh, some very sage advice from Mr. Burnett about basins and towels. A bit of sage advice from me. If you're a baptized member of the church, it's good to keep a foot count. I was down by two last year, and I'm down by at least four in previous years because I kept the Passover with a very small group where there were a couple of ladies and, no, and, and me, so uh, uh, keep a foot count. But of course, it, I don't mean to be facetious. That foot, foot washing part of the surface is very, very important, and it reminds us that we should always be willing to serve our brothers and sisters in the faith. But coming back to the part about Jesus Christ, the New Testament makes it so plain that Jesus Christ is alive. He's our Savior. And there is not only that, but there's a blessing attached to the recognition of that fact. John chapter 20. John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Beginning in verse 24. John 20, verse 24. Doubting Thomas. <laughs> now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. You and I have not seen the Lord, not at least in that way. We hope we've seen the reflection of the Lord in our brothers and sisters in the faith, in the body of Christ. But in that sense, we haven't seen the Lord. We read about him. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his sight, I will not believe. It's quite a statement. It's quite a statement. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came and the doors were shut and he stood in the midst and he said, peace to you. Verse 27, so he said to Thomas, reach your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach your hand here. Put it into my side. Don't be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas was finally won over. Verse 28, Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, now look at what he says here. Thomas, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
So there's a blessing for you and me, the ones who have not seen and yet we believe. I think at this time of the year, it's very good for us to stop and ask ourselves, do we really believe it? Has it really come home to us? And perhaps another question that we need to take a look at, what is Jesus Christ doing now? He's in heaven, 2,000 years, a long time. There's a blessing there for believing that it was real, that his sacrifice was real, especially for those who were not physically present there. And it's also a matter of considerable uh, danger because um, in the book of Acts in chapter 7, and I won't take the time to turn there, but in chapter 7 where Stephen gives the first inspired, not the first inspired, but he gives one of the first inspired sermons in the church given by Stephen, who was the deacon. And he says, right at the end, I see, the, uh, I see God the Father and the Lord standing at his right hand. And you remember, he actually lost his life over that. He was the first martyr for the church. So this is a very important matter. It's a life and death matter. It's a life and death doctrine. Last night, we participated in Jesus Christ. Our minds should have been on him. Figuratively, we ate his flesh and we drank of his blood and we confessed, Lord, we believe in you. We believe you are alive. And again, one of the reasons why I I think this is such an important subject is because in Protestantism, this gets sort of ballyhooed and sometimes it loses its meaning. But for us in the church, it must not lose its meaning. He is alive. He's busy. He's doing certain things. And from now down to the festival of Pentecost, we confess that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. Now, of course, we confess that year round, but it's something for us to be thinking about. For the next seven days, we acknowledge that he is our Lord and our Savior by putting sin out of our lives. Jesus Christ did something to initiate that uh, plan of salvation. It's wonderful, beautiful, marvelous plan of salvation by laying down his life and in one sense initiating God's plan of salvation. So what is he doing now? What is Christ doing now? Perhaps there's more information in the New Testament in particular than we realize. What is Jesus Christ doing now? And what does that mean for us? We confess we believe in him. Well, let's go to one of the instructions that he gives us here in John chapter 14. John chapter 14 and verses 13 and 14. John 14 verse 13. So many times in the scriptures it says this actually, it says it repeatedly. And uh, we understand this. Pray in his name. John 14, verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, look at the way it's phrased here, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. It's amazing the way this is stated. John 16, verse 24, just over the page. John 16, verse 24, we pray in his name. John 16, verse 24, Until now, you've asked nothing in my name, Jesus says to his disciples. Ask, ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now, at the beginning of the service today, we prayed. We had an opening prayer, and the prayer ended in Jesus' name. I think from time to time, maybe we brush past that a little bit too quickly. What we do in praying at the beginning of services and at the end of services and over our meals when we're at home or whatever the case may be or in our private prayer, when we close that prayer in Jesus' name, that means something. You and I confess he's alive. No point in praying in the name of a dead man. He's alive. And his, his work, his intervention on our behalf means something. Now, okay, I've been guilty of this and maybe some of you have been guilty as well. Okay, uh, you know, you're sitting down for a meal and you're in a hurry and you thank God for the food and you go, in Jesus' name. And I've noticed sometimes even in, in class, we have three prayers at Foundation Institute, one at the beginning of the morning session, one at the end of the morning session before lunch, and then we have another one right after lunch to ask God's blessing on the afternoon session. And sometimes we get to Jesus' name, and brrr, you know, it's, it's so fast, you know. Now, I'm not suggesting that, 
You know, when you've got the Cheerios on the table, you have to give a sermonette about everything that Jesus is doing. You know, he's our Lord and Savior. The Cheerios are sitting there, beginning to get, get soggy. And, you know, he's our Lord and he's our Savior. And, you know, he's coming back. We don't have to get that flowery. But my point is, sometimes, I don't know who's giving the closing prayer at the end of a service. So I feel badly for him because maybe he'll feel on trial because of this. But brethren, really, when we, when we close our prayer, we need to stop and think about what that means. We pray in Jesus' name. And there are, of course, very specific reasons for that. It says repeatedly, pray in my name. There's power in that name because Jesus Christ is the Savior and he's alive. So we pray in his name. It says it several times in the New Testament. We uh, also know from the New Testament, and it says this several times, that he is the head of the church. He's the head of the church. And again, this is one of those phrases that I think uh, sometimes I worry a little bit that perhaps for us in God's church, this is one of those sentences that begins to lose meaning. Does it? Can it? I think it can if we're not careful. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He directs the church. He's in charge of the church. Ephesians 1 verse 22. Jesus Christ is the living head of the church. The reason I think that this must never be a bumper sticker or lapel pin for us is because it's the difference for us between joining some kind of human religious association and being called to be part of a living body infused with the Spirit of God. Ephesians 1 verse 22, of course it says this in many places. He, God, put all things under his feet, Jesus Christ, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The fullness of him who fills all in all. He's the head of the church, and from there he directs the church. Now look, I think this was easier to preach 30 years ago. I understand that. I think it was more easy for all of us to digest because we thought we understood it perhaps in terms that were a little bit more cut and dried than perhaps they should have been. We've been through a lot. We've seen the human side of the church. And sometimes for us to confess, Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Well, maybe we stop and think because we've seen the human side, we've seen division, we've seen things that ought not to have been. Nevertheless, let's be reminded of something. Last night, as Mr. Burnett told us, last night, 92 people keeping the Passover in Sherman and some, who knows how many, maybe another 20, uh, on a video link. Last night, 152 people here in this hall, people in whom dwells the Spirit of God keeping the Passover. Uh, What I'm saying here is very basic. The fact that we did that, the fact that we're still here, is evidence that Jesus Christ is alive and that he's the head of the church. He says the gates of the grave will never never, uh, prevail against that church. We, I know at times we've come to use a kind of a shorthand and I hear people every now and then say, well, I joined the church in such and such a year and I'm always a little bit uncomfortable with that even to this day. You know, and it used to be in the early days of the church, people would kind of stop you and say, no, st- wait a minute, uh, the terminology is wrong. You can't join the church. You have to be called to be part of the church. It's true. Now, all right, we're using, a, we're using kind of a shorthand, but uh, uh, let, again, I come back to that same point. We don't join a human religious association. We're called and placed into a spiritual body. And I think at this time of the year, that's hugely important. You and I are part of a spiritual body. And frankly, had God not called us through Jesus Christ, how many of the people in this room would you have known I would have known nobody, not one. Would have passed on the street and maybe said good morning, not one. Or maybe some, if you're Dallasites, unlike me, maybe you did know a few of the people in this room prior to the time that God called you or perhaps called your parents and you, of course, because there's a calling in every generation. But for many of us, we have to confess, look, all of the people that I know now, all the people I fellowship with, they wouldn't have even been there in my life had it not been for the fact that God called me and placed me as part of the body of Christ. I used to think that meant micromanaging. I know now it doesn't mean micromanaging. But still, 
it is a fact that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. It says it repeatedly. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4, one of my favorite sections of Scripture. It's so meaningful. Ephesians 4, verses 7 and 8. Ephesians 4, verses 7 and 8. Here the Apostle Paul is talking about the church and he draws our attention to the fact that the church is a spiritual organism imbued with the power of the Spirit of God. Let's please not forget that as we come through the, spir the spring holy days. Ephesians 4 verse 7, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace is a form of gifts. We've been given as a gift to be in the body of Christ, to fulfill certain roles of service. Therefore, he says, when he, Christ, ascended on high, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. Isn't that a, a wonderful, wonderful statement there and deeply meaningful? Uh, let's read verse 9. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Scriptures are very plain. And I think it's good for us from time to time to go over these scriptures and just as kind of a spiritual checkup to ask ourselves, do I really truly believe this? The church of God belongs to Jesus Christ. He's real. He's alive. He's the head of the church. It's a wonderful truth. And then verse 11 and he himself gave some, that's active. He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the building up of the church, the edifying of the church, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And I think we're in a time when the body of Christ is being edified and uh, we're learning lessons together. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And again, we've got a phrase there loaded with meaning. Measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the goal. Aren't you glad you're still a work in progress? I am. I'm not there yet. We've still got a ways to go, but I do believe we're making progress. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in everything into him who is the head. See, it says it again. Jesus Christ is the head. We grow. He's our model. We're to grow to be like him. This is active. This is real. It's spiritual. Verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share. We had an example of that last night. You know, we've got the still on the tail end of coronavirus and so on, so there had to be special arrangements and many people serving in different capacities. I saw a couple of our young men not yet baptized, but serving in the security capacity out there. But all that work that it took last night to arrange for the foot washing for the ladies and the foot washing for the men. And then someone, I don't know who it was, by the way, but somebody baked unleavened bread. I thought I was going to get a piece of matzo. So I don't know who it was, probably somebody here in this congregation, but it was a piece of freshly baked uh, bread. Um, well, every joint supplies, the church works together. According to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Um, we're here. <laughs> That's evidence of the fact that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. We, uh, from time to time, stop and think what would have been of my life had I not been part of God's church, as Mr. Bennett said in the sermonette. Uh, Zahar is the pronunciation. Sorry, Mr. Bennett, I hate to give you a Hebrew lesson. There's a prophet, one of the 12 minor prophets. Uh, his uh, name is God Remembers, Zechariah, Zechariah. And it's appropriate, that's absolutely right, to go through the story because God did intervene in our lives through Jesus Christ and placed us into this wonderful body that is referred to as the body of Jesus Christ. He's the head of the church. He's in charge of the church. And even though the church has faced setbacks over the years and uh, setbacks in our lifetimes as well, of course, Jesus Christ says the gates of the grave will not prevail against it. And you and I are still here endowed with God's Holy Spirit. 
with the body of Christ. Where would you have been if God had not called you and placed you in his church? Let's move on because there's another function here that I like to discuss in Romans 8 and verse 34. Romans 8 and verse 34. If you turn there with me, Jesus Christ is alive and one of his roles at present is to intercede for us. Romans 8 and verse 34 says here, I'm interrupting the context, which I think is a shame because there's a lot here. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God who makes intercession for us. Intercession. Both the New Testament and the Old Testament say Jesus Christ intercedes for you, for you and me. Have you ever had anybody intercede for you? Have you ever done something and you thought, that was a terrible mistake, I wish I hadn't done that. (laughs) And maybe had to apologize to someone and and, and you go to bed at night thinking, oh, I wish I hadn't made that mistake. That's not going to happen again. And then maybe somebody said, interceded for you and said, look, you know, this person has learned his or her lesson. Hebrews 7, verse 25. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. Jesus Christ intercedes for us. Hebrews 7, verse 25. Therefore, again interrupting the context, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus Christ always lives to make intercession for us. What does intercession mean? From Merriam-Webster online, the act of interceding, that doesn't help very much, does it? Prayer, petition, or entreaty in favor of another. From dictionary.com, an act or instance of interceding and interposing or pleading on behalf of another person. A prayer to God on behalf of another. From Roman history, the interposing of a veto as by a tribune. Jesus Christ intercedes. Now, I'm guessing now that probably many of us in this congregation, in our roles as in our families, perhaps in a management role, we've got teachers here in this congregation, have from time to time had to intercede for someone. Uh, Put in a word on someone's behalf. There have been occasions, like I remember a, a number of years ago, that there was a student at Ambassador College, and uh, he, he had done something. He'd done something that was, frankly, dumb. <laughs> but uh, he'd done something. It wasn't such a big deal. and I don't re- even remember what he'd done at this point. But I remember his name came up in, in a meeting. There were other members of the faculty there, and certain people wanted to do certain things and so on. And so, you know, recognizing that I'm one who needs a little mercy every now and then, I spoke up and I said, you know, it's not that serious what he's done. And uh, others did that at time, from time to time. From time to time, people intercede. From time to time, people will say, come on, let's cut a little bit of slack for this person. Kind of an illustration of what Jesus Christ does for us. Um, if we're not careful, and we have to be very careful, if we're not careful, we can end up thinking of a kind of a dualistic God. Uh, God, the Father in heaven, the grumpy old man, who's eager to condemn people and to zap people. And along comes Jesus Christ, who says, no, he's eager to forgive people. And they kind of work at loggerheads. It's not like that, of course. It's not that Jesus says, oh, please be nice to them. And the Father says, I'm going to be hard on them. It doesn't work that way, of course. God the Father and Jesus Christ are one in their judgment. They're one in the way they do things. But... Jesus Christ intercedes on our behalf. He puts in a word for us every now and then. I remember a conversation I had with uh, Mr. Dick Thompson, I think a couple of years ago. And uh, again, he was talking about a student at Ambassador College. I don't think he even remembered the name of the student any longer. And he was talking about the fact that, again, something happened. The name of this student came up. And uh, I think perhaps some were saying, well, we should uh, dismiss this student from being a student at Ambassador College. And the man who was then the uh, um, uh, deputy chancellor has just said, kind of interceded. Well, he's just being a dumb kid. You know, call him in, tell him not to do it again, and hope, hope that he straightens up. Now, I guess that's a kind of a trivial way of, to describe it in terms of what Christ does for us. But nevertheless, the scriptures do say very clearly that Jesus Christ intercedes for us. He intercedes because he's the intercessor because he knows what it's like. 
He mediates for us. He mediates. In Hebrews 4, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, this is another of the um, functions of Jesus Christ, one of the things that he's doing from heaven at the right hand of the Father. He mediates for us, and the image here is of the high priest. Now, every year on the Day of Atonement, we've talked about this quite a bit, you know what happened. The high priest on that day alone went into the Holy of Holies. He had to bring an offering for himself. He had to bring blood into the Holy of Holies. It was a very solemn ceremony. And then he, he uh, acts on behalf of the children of Israel. He mediates. And the same imagery is used here for our high priest with capital H and capital P. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Yes, let us hold fast our confession. Last night we had the Passover. We recommitted ourselves. Let's hold on to it. It's a real confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He, of course, was the one who came to earth and lived the human life and knows what sin is like, even though he himself never sinned. He knows what temptation is like, even though he himself never yielded to temptation. Verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Pray in my name. Pray in my name, Jesus says. He mediates for us. We pray to God the Father through Jesus Christ. It goes through Jesus Christ. And as I said, our God is not a dualistic God. We don't have a kind of a battle going on between God the Father, uh, who's uh, inclined to punish, and Jesus Christ, who advocates for mercy. That's not the image. But Jesus Christ, of course, was the one who came to earth, and therefore he knows what it's like. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. An interesting comment here. We're beginning tomorrow morning to count down to Pentecost when the time historically when the Holy Spirit was poured out. Ephesians 1 verse 3 in the Apostles' Prayer here, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. The blessings come through Christ. Next week in our Foundation Institute classroom, we go through a short section which is titled The Proof of the Bible Through Our Experience. And we talk about three different areas where many church members and young people brought up in the church have had the experience and we uh, talk about divine healing, which we understand and which we practice and of course which is part of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made. We also talk about divine protection and I can tell you from listening to some of the stories for many, many years, I know so many of our young people have really kept the angels busy. Uh, when there have been dangerous moments. I mean, some of the stories I heard have been just amazing. I wish I'd written them all down. And the third one we talk about is blessings, financial blessings, when people were in straits, having difficulty uh, financially. And look at what it says here. The blessings come through Jesus Christ. The spiritual blessings come through Jesus Christ. The healings, the understanding, the provision of God's Holy Spirit. Acts 2, verse 33. Acts 2 and verse 33. The Spirit comes from God through Christ. Acts 2, verse 33. Acts 2, verse 33. Therefore, this is the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, Christ, poured out that which you now see and hear. I've always found it interesting the way it's phrased there in verse 33. God, it's almost as if God the Father 
gave over the Holy Spirit to Christ. I don't mean to state that in the wrong way, but the Spirit is then poured out in the church through Jesus Christ. It is, in fact, Jesus Christ's presence in the church. So he mediates for us, and the blessings come through Jesus Christ. And, of course, one of the very great blessings that we have is that ongoing blessing that we, I hope, pray on a regular basis. In Matthew 6 and verse 12, Matthew 6 and verse 12, <clears throat> Matthew 6, verse 12, this, um, it's been referred to as the model prayer. Of course, it's not to be just recited, but there's a very important sentiment here in Matthew 6 and verse 12, and it says, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Please, God, forgive our debts. I think we all should be asking on a regular basis for God's grace, for God's forgiveness, for God to forgive us our debts. And of course, he does that through Jesus Christ. His sacrifice has an ongoing, a continued aspect to it. We read at the Passover last night, 1 John chapter 1, 1 John 1, verses 8 through 10. 1 John chapter 1, 8 through 10. And isn't this a good thing? Because it's through Jesus Christ's sacrifice that we can keep on walking, that we can continue in this path. First John 1, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is ongoing. That's part of his role as our high priest and our savior. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We have an ongoing need for Jesus Christ as our savior because it's through Jesus Christ that God forgives us of our sins. In Proverbs 24, verse 16, Proverbs 24, verse 16, Jesus Christ doesn't license sin, but sin can be forgiven among people who are repentant. Proverbs 24, verse 16 tells us here that a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. The righteous one keeps on getting up. That's what we do in Christ. We get up and we walk again. We get up and we must never ever give up because Christ does not give up on us. In John chapter 14, there's another fascinating little section, very, very important section, that sheds tremendous light on what Jesus Christ is doing for us now. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to switch to a different translation here because I thought this is such an important section of Scripture where Christ tells us he's preparing the way for us. This is the many mansions section of Scripture. Let's see. Uh, I've got a couple of other translations here. This is John 14, verses 1 through 4 in the Good News translation, and it drives it home rather well. You can follow along if you've got the New King James Version. Uh, good news translation. It's a loose translation, but it makes the point rather nicely here. Do not be worried and upset, Jesus told them. Believe in God and believe also in me. There are many rooms in my Father's house, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. I would not tell you this if it were not so. And after I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to myself so that you will be where I am. You know the way that leads to the place where I am going. In another translation, the voice. And Jesus says, don't get lost in despair. Believe in God and keep on believing in me. Verse 2, my father's home is designed to accommodate all of you. Isn't that a wonderful way of stating it? If there were not room for everyone, I would have told you that. I'm going to make arrangements for your arrival. I will be there to greet you personally and welcome you home where we will be together. You know where I'm going and how to get there. And of course, then Thomas says, we, we don't know the way. And Jesus in verse six, and I'm back in the New King James Version here, says to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. A very important statement. Nevertheless, Jesus Christ, and I don't know what this looks like exactly, but he tells us very clearly that he's in heaven at the right hand of the Father preparing 
to receive us to him. Now, of course, we don't go to heaven. He comes back to earth, but he's preparing the way. What does that look like? Um, the many mansions translation actually is a little bit misleading. Many dwelling places. In the Spanish, it's muchas moradas. Many dwelling places. What does it mean? Christ preparing the way. I think it probably has to do with our experiences as we go through life, taking our own experience with in some way, shape, or form, and I, I don't know that I can describe this, but preparing a new habitat. Many of us have uh, moved into a new house and prepared that new house and decorated it. Jesus Christ is active, preparing to receive us into this uh, destiny of being in part of God's kingdom. I found an article. I'd like to read a little bit of this article to you. I was online, and I'll give you the reference here. Uh, this is an article from uh, www.seedbed.com. Don't ask me. <laughs> www.seedbed.com, Father's House, Many Mansions, dates from 2016, and the author is somebody called Howard Snyder. Father's House, Many Mansions. I'm going to read you a little bit of it because I thought this is very interesting. Uh, Jesus says in John 14, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. He quotes the first three verses. This is the King James Version, familiar to many Christians. Its language deeply lodged in Christian hymnody and devotional piety. Yet this is one of the most misunderstood passages in the Bible. Amazing statement. The problem is that Jesus' comforting words have been seen through the lens of medieval ideas of heaven rather than in light of the Old Testament and, other, and Jesus' other teachings. If we examine the whole chapter carefully, what do we find? Some key points. Many mansions. In King James' day, a mansion was a room, not a huge, fancy house. Today, many translations say many dwelling places in RSV or plenty of room as the TNIV helpfully puts it. Jesus' central meeting is this, there's plenty of room with God. Parentheses, it is, apparently has not troubled many Christians that in my father's house are many mansions is nonsensical as mansion is properly understood. My father's house, and then he actually gets to the center of this. This does not mean heaven. Heaven is not mentioned once in the whole chapter. What then is this father's house? And he goes on to say, Jesus speaks out of the context of the whole Old Testament revelation. Dropping down, I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus assures his apostles that in going away through his crucifixion and death, he is accomplishing the next step in God's plan for his kingdom to come into fullness. And then he goes on to discuss John chapter 13 through 16. Jesus' words here thus mean, I go to accomplish the next step in bringing the complete fulfillment of God's promises of salvation and creation healed. So I thought it was interesting. Again, that article I'm not recommending without any reservation whatsoever, but you may want to take a look at it. It's interesting. There are perceptive people out there who understand that. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to welcome you. There's lots of room. No need for competitiveness. There's lots of room for the entire family to be part of God's dwelling. I'm preparing a place for you. It's a remarkable section of scripture, and I really don't know exactly how to describe it, but that is what he says. And of course, let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which we read last night, and Mr. Bennett read a little bit of it in the sermonette. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 26. This is always striking because we think of the Passover as looking backward. And it does, indeed it does. It looks back to the Exodus. It looks back to the coming out of Egypt, to that original Passover in Exodus 12, to the first New Testament Passover in the Gospels. But in one verse here, and I want to just pick this up here, uh, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 26 because this is the forward-looking part of the Passover. For as, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Every year, 
when we sit down at the Passover and we eat that little piece of bread and we drink that little cup of wine, we not only commit ourselves to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we not only rededicate ourselves and, and thank him for the sacrifice that he made, but we also declare, Lord, I believe you're coming back shortly. And so he is, of course. We read it in John chapter 14. In my Father's house are many mansions. I'm going to prepare a place for you. You see, brethren, Jesus Christ is alive and he's very active. And I think it's so important, really year-round, but especially at the springtime of the year, that we stop and just remind ourselves of, of that. Give ourselves a spiritual checkup. And part of that spiritual checkup needs to be, do I really believe? Do I have to be like Thomas? Hopefully not. Do I really believe he is alive? Do I really believe he's active? Do I really believe he's the head of the church? So fundamental, so fundamental to Christianity and so important in our faith. So do you believe? Do I? We better. Very, very important. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 as we come toward the end of this. Colossians 3 beginning in verse 4, Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, look at the way the Apostle Paul states it, he is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And then, and of course this evening begins the Days of Unleavened Bread, where in a sense we respond to that sacrifice that the Savior made for you and for me and for all of God's people down through the ages. Verse 5, Therefore, put to death your members which are on earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you, all, you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. And isn't it amazing? You know, we have the Passover and then we have the beginning of the days of unleavened bread and Jesus Christ initiates the process and then we respond to that. Let's finish it off in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 this evening, of course, begins the days of unleavened bread. And as we heard in the sermonette, it is really very appropriate when we sit down uh, for dinner this evening and we enjoy that wonderful night to be observed or the night to be much remembered as we once used to refer to it, to go through our stories. It's amazing how many times in the Bible they rehearse the story. Over and over again, the story of the Exodus is rehearsed. So yes, it's appropriate that we go through that and we recognize that if God had not intervened in our lives and made Jesus Christ our Savior, our lives would have looked very, very different. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and uh, verse... Um, well, let's pick it up here in uh, verse 7. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. It's a renewal since you truly are unleavened, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And of course, everything we do, we do in honor for him, because he's the center of our faith, and he really is alive 